This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big, short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove and I'm joined, of course, by John Gibson, who has worked for the Chronicle for more than 50 years. Um, and like I say, it's time for another edition of what has become a very popular podcast. And um, mm. today we've got quite an interesting subject. We're going to talk about the strikers, not necessarily the best strikers. There's going to be a mix of legends yeah. and uh, not so much. Uh, when it comes to the names that we have written down and Gibbo has gone through his archive and we've come up with quite a list of strikers and he's going to go through and tell some funny stories, some insightful stories and, and just tales that you guys have probably never heard before. Um, so Gibbo, thank you very much for coming in. Not at all. Um, um, special subject for me because number nines are what all Geordies have been brought up on. They are the legendary figures. They are the centre stage figures and the, the rest of them are the chorus line, like it or not. It's it's about people who put the ball in the net or, in some cases, with Newcastle United, don't. And the one I want to start with, because he's become a dear, dear friend, but also he's become an absolute number nine legend, and that's Supermac, who came to us at the age of 21. Remember that, 21. Uh, he was just the age Sean Longstaff is now, but he came to us, never having played in the top flight, but with a goal-scoring record and just ripped this town apart. Uh, and ended up, home debut, as we know, we're not going to go into a hat-trick against Liverpool. You're a superstar for the rest of your life if you do that. Played in two cup finals at Wembley for Newcastle and his career was all over before he was 30. A 29-year-old at Arsenal when he got a very bad knee injury. So he packed an awful lot into an awful short space of time. But, um, and I mean, I remember getting him. I remember getting him... uh, Early on, the Chronicle, I was, he did a a column in the Chronicle, as he does now. Um, And early on, the Chronicle said, look, we would love to run an advertising campaign by the Chronicle. He said, we want to split into two, by the Chronicle to read Newcastle United, to read John Gibson, and we'd like Malcolm McDonald to do that, and by the Chronicle for all the news coverage and would like Rodney Buse to do that. Rodney Buse was one of the likely lads, which was very big on telly at the time, and so they went for him. Now, they knew both were good friends of mine, and being canny old folks at the Cron, they wanted them as cheap as possible, which turned out to be nout. Uh, the wonderful thing is that neither of them got paid, but fatal mistake with Supermac and I, the Chronicle said, 
We played at Ipswich on the Saturday. We went down to London to film the TV adverts on the Sunday. So we were staying the Saturday night in London. And they said, we'll take you out. We can't pay a wage, but we'll take you out on the town. Well, of course, we were out at three or four o'clock in the morning in string fellows with bottles of champagne, bless them. So the Chronicle would have been better sticking a couple of notes in the pocket and saying, go to bed and take a tablet. Um, they didn't. Um, we got there the next day. The, the studio was booked from 10 in the morning to four at night. We got there. Rodney Buse, who knew Gibbo and knew Supermac, did the right thing and said, oh, I'm not coming out, Gibbo, I'll just stay in tonight. And he stayed in the hotel. Uh, well, Charlie made him a likely lad in our eyes, but there you go. Uh, we went out for the night. When we got there, they said, we'll, we'll do Rodney Buse advert first, and then you. Signed by us, and we thought Rodney, chop, chop, actor, would just fly through the thing. But he was an, a real professional, and he took, he wanted take after take after take until he got it right. Supermark and I actually went to sleep behind the hoardings just offset on a long bench while we were waiting to go on. We got on at half past three with only half an hour left and we had to do it in two takes. Yet the adverts were two of the best received in the whole history of, of the Chronicle doing uh, television adverts. And the whole of that trip was made because of who Supermac was and because of his humour and his warmth. And he'd become a very, very dear friend of mine. I always remember up here, as I say, I was writing his column, ghosting his column. And then this summer we did the column. We met on the Saturday to ghost, to get the column and it appeared on the Monday in the paper. And um, I just lost my little son, Nicholas, who at 11 weeks old, and Malcolm knew the torment I was going through. We still met on the Saturday to do the column. He got there early and he instructed the barman. I only found out afterwards that when he saw the bottle of chilled white wine empty, Malcolm would turn it upside down and put it in the bucket, just fill it up again without mentioning anything. We did the column first because at least we were professional about that, put it all in the inside pocket, went in to have a meal about four or five o'clock throughout the restaurant because the band were wanting to rehearse for a dinner dance that night. We went back in the bar and we actually left at 10 o'clock that night from 10 at lunchtime and he picked up the whole tab for the whole time because he knew I needed to relax and enjoy myself. Now, this is a super superstar of football, and yet he had that sort of friendship. How would you strike up a friendship like that with such a superstar? Because you, you've worked with many people sure. over the years, and 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 even today's team that we've got here, and the likes of Lane and Chris, mm, mm, you know, mm. there's not that friendship between it. No, there's not. Star. I, so I, how did you set that one up? I don't think there is the same setup now. In those days, for example, all interviews were one on one. You had to go and get it with the player. Now, a player's wheeled out in front of you, as you know, at a press conference. You can sit there and not ask one question and you get exactly the same story as the guy that's asked all the questions, which is very unfair. Not if you're a bad reporter, it isn't. It's very fair then. But it's unfair on the, on the top, top class reporters. In those days, we used to go out on a one-on-one. -on -one. And remember, in those days, I was the same age as the players. So, uh, in fact, there wasn't that sort of difference. We're going to go out with this old so-and-so. What the heck do I want to do that for? I was the same age as, as Supermac or a couple of years older. And we were simply the 
the same type of people. He was an extrovert who loved his white wine, who loved a big cigar, and who could talk the hind legs off a donkey. And I've just described myself, and I've described Supermac <laughs> at the same time. So it was, it was very easy. And I always went with wacky off-the-wall stars. I got on best with Gaza, with Supermac, uh, with the extroverts rather than the introverts. I would always be more uh, Rod Stewart and Meatloaf than I would be Cliff Richard. When Gibbo, or sorry, when Sutomac, rather, getting mm. confused myself there. Um, <laughs> when Sutomac first pulled up in that car, yeah. sure if I'd driven car, 21-year-old, very confident, very brash. Yeah. What was your first impression? My first impression was terrific. The bloke's got charisma. The second impression is, by God, he's got a big heart and a bit of courage to, to be able to, because once you do that... You couldn't see Jocelyn coming in a Rolls Royce with a guy with a peaky cap, the chauffeur opening the door to let him out at 21 year old. You've got to be good. And my second thought was, by God, he better be good, having done that. And ironically, in his first two games, I was following Newcastle all the time then. And in his first two games, both away, I think there were Crystal Palace and Spurs, both away. And I thought, what have we got here? He looked heavy-legged, uh, he, he, he didn't have a lot of movement, he didn't greatly impress. Of course, he, he didn't have the firepower behind him that he eventually had. But then he came home to Liverpool, who were the superstars of the time. It was the, the basis of what was their European Cup-winning side with, with Keegan and Toshak and all the, all the good, good players, Emerald Hughes, Smith, Clements and goal, and he scored a hat-trick. And then we knew what we had we knew what we got and this was a kid at 21 doing this uh, full of brashness full of cockiness um, that never left him and that made him the striker he was and he always said that he was a great striker not because of the goals he scored but the goals he missed when he missed a chance he never hid he used to say that's one shot nearer me scoring the next shot I'll score with well, that kind of goes into the next question I want to ask you, is that when he had a bad game and considering that you were such good friends, mm. w- I'm assuming there was no fear of, of like, you know, telling them he had a bad game or writing it up. No, in, there, in the there wasn't, because to be truthful, we wouldn't have stayed friends because the one thing I prided myself on was being professional. And the second thing was that my opinion counted. If I sold myself short by saying a centre-forward had it been terrific, when 50,000 had seen how bad he'd been, my reputation goes down the pan, and I wasn't prepared to do that. Um, Mind you, everybody I've always got on wonderfully in life with, which is like the Gazas and the Supermax and Shearer and Steve Cram, and uh, they all happen to have been at the top of their sport, which has made it easier on the day they've had a bad game. And Malcolm McDonald knew he was there if he fired that, but he, he knew he was also there to get the headlines. And then the friendship become apparent after he finished playing here when he was getting married um, to Carol, and he asked me if I'd be his best man, Carol's the girl he's married to now. And it was a special occasion for me because not only was I Supermax's best man, but I was actually Carol's best man in a way as well because she had been a mate all our adult life. She'd been married to Brian Johnson, ACDC, 
I knew Brian and knew her as a couple. After the party, she opened a restaurant called Reds in town because she had red hair. I used to go in there. I knew her well. And then, lo and behold, two of my best mates get together, get married, and I'm best man. Now, that was a very, very special day for me. And I appreciated that more than I could say. And, um, of course, the interest, I mean... You asked, was there any sort of difficulty in saying that Supermac had a bad game? The difficulty came when Joe Harvey left Newcastle and Gordon Lee took over at Newcastle because he hated superstars and he, he got rid of Hibbert who made the bullets and he got rid of Supermac who fired them and he did the same with Duncan McKenzie when he went to Everton. Hated superstars. And, of course, I unreservedly hitched my wagon to goal scorers, Lee knew I was a Malcolm McDonald man. He didn't like Malcolm McDonald. So the confrontation and the difficulty came between me and Gordon Lee during Lee's time. Because Lee always rated Alan Gowling much better than than, than Supermac. And I love Alan as a bloke, and I think he was quite a talented centre-forward. But it's like comparing chalk with cheese in... in in ability and in finishing power. There was only one Supermac, and Alan Gowling, wasn't him? Most certainly. We're going to move on to another name, Albert Bennett. He scored uh, 23 goals in 90 games uh, between 1965 and 1969. Um, His goal scoring record not particularly brilliant. Did he have a bit of talent there, though? Yes, he did. He was... Beset by injuries, that was his problem. Uh, he was repeatedly on the injured list. I mean, he played for England under 23s, uh, had terrific talent. The season before we won the European First Cup, him and Wynne Davies were the two strikers in Newcastle and did ever so well forward to, to qualify for, for the First Cup. Uh, his nickname, Albert, was because of his injuries, was either Orkel or Ankles. And the reason, Orkel was the champion racehorse of the time, who was well known because he had, his legs had fetals, had were completely white. And Albert used to tape up his ankles when he played with white tape to give them some strength because he was, so he'd become known as either Ankles or, or, or as Orkel. Um, and a northeastern lad, a county Durham lad, um, full of fun, um, become a good pal of mine as well. Uh, the interesting thing, I always remember Ankles giving me a bell in midweek uh, on a Wednesday, Newcastle weren't playing. And he said, Gibbo, how are you doing? I said, I'm all right. He said, do you fancy a night out? I said, oh, yes, I think I might uh, put myself out with that. Uh, he says, the missus is away, seeing her parents and whatever, so come across, we'll have a few goggles, some to eat, and a good night. I said, that's brilliant. So off I went, up to his place, out for the night. Few bevies turned into, several bevies turned into a, a, a nightclub, turned into a one o'clock in the morning taxi back to his place. A um, couple of more drinks in there and he said, Gibbo, it's pointless going home. You know, getting a taxi, going home at two o'clock in the morning. The missus is away, the house is empty, why don't you just stay here and get yourself away in the morning? I said, that'll do for me. Uh, amazingly, without thinking about it, we both went to bed in the same double bed, which was his double bed. And it was a bit like Morecambe and Wise. Can you remember when they used to sit up in bed with their pyjamas on and they felt 
a bit like that. Before we knew where we were, bang, we're both asleep, like, because we've had several quantities of ale down the back of one neck and we're both asleep. And then I, next thing I know, I hear the phone ringing by the bed. I'm like, what, what time? But I thought, I'll just lie, doggo, it's not my house, I'm not going to answer. Lay doggo, and I could hear Albert scrummaging around, picks up the phone, hello. And then all of a sudden I can see he's alert. And he's saying, um, yes, gaffer, no gaffer. And I thought, oops, it is. Now, is this a missus or Joe Harvey? Because he had two gaffers. And it was Joe Harvey. And evidently it was about quarter to 11. And I had to be in by quarter past 10 for training that morning. He obviously hadn't turned in. He'd overslept with me. Uh, he hadn't turned in, so Joe's phone to say, where the heck are you? Now, Albert was always a quick thinker on his feet. If he wasn't quick chasing the ball, he was quick at thinking. And he said, uh, oh, boss, he said, actually, I've got a bit of a virus. He says, I think it's one of these 24-hour bugs going about. He said, I feel real rough. Didn't want to come in, pass it on to any of the boys. I thought, I'll sweat it out for 24 hours, be in tomorrow, and everything be all right. I could hear that side of the conversation. Joe's obviously replying. And... Um, Joe says, hey, good lad, you've done the right thing. We don't want anything spreading around the dressing room. You've done the right thing. Just keep yourself warm. Forget about it. We'll see you in the morning. And Albert says, OK, boss, just going to put the phone down. So Joe says, hey, oh, oh, wait a minute. One thing, one thing, Albert. And Albert says, what's that? He says, whatever you do, don't tell the press. Who, who's lying in the same bed with him? Me. Um, but in those days, that sort of thing... Um, happened and nobody took advantage of shopping a player and what was happening because the friendship brought you so many correct, positive stories that you didn't need to dub players in. And the same guy, we went to Blackpool. And in those days, we didn't, you didn't go to warm weather training in Spain like Newcastle United have just done. You went to Blackpool and got the... Uh, the wind howling up your trouser leg and the donkeys on the beach. Um, so one night we nipped after, after training, we nipped out all the players together and we went to a nightclub in town that was run by a guy called Colin Tiny Prince and his nickname Tiny was because he was built like giant haystacks. He used to do the one o'clock show on Tiny's television up, up here. We went in there, the place was packed and we were, we are standing at the back Colin Tiny Prince gives us a wave uh, from stage where he's playing with the band. Um, and I just look around and there's a little tropical pool there with what looks like baby alligators in it. And I'm looking at these and listening to music and I nudged Albert and I said, have you seen them? Have you seen them down the sea as a look? I said, alligators? He said, no. I says, and they're real, they're alive. I said, you can see the eyes moving. He says, no, they're not, they're not, they're, don't be stupid. I said, I'm telling you, I'll bet you, bottle of wine, they're alive. So he says, right, you're on. So he takes his trouser leg, pulls it up, puts his foot over, over the fence, this small fence that's round the pool. And with the steel cap on his shoe, he whacks this alligator right across the snout to see if there's... Well, the alligator went berserk. The tail come flying up, all the water come up with the tail flew over our heads onto all the girls sitting at the table with their boyfriends, had the beehive hairstyles in those days, which were looking distinctly skew if and um, we decided not to wait to see Colin Tiny Prince, but to leave rather rapidly, uh, which we did so. But um, 
Albert was good, good fun. The amazing thing was he then left and after football he became a, um, uh, a warden in a local prison down in East Anglia, which he went down and played there after Newcastle. And he'd become a warden there. And um, I always thought that was such an unusual job for for a free spirit with so much fun about him as Albert. But with Albert, it's what might have been, but uh, happy memories. Definitely. Again, I just want to ask a similar question about the relationship. Mm. Do you think, you know, obviously back then they didn't earn nowhere near the amount of money they earned today. Do you think that plays into it as well as a different kind of... Oh, yes, I, I think so, because what players did in those days more than um, now is that they mixed in the same ordinary world all the time. With, with They didn't have huge money. Supermac, one of the greatest players Newcastle have ever had, greatest centre-forwards have ever had, was, wasn't able to retire and never work again. Uh, I mean, Alan Shearer, bless him, could do that, but he's got enough talent and he wants to do things and he does match of the day and does it very well now. But Supermac had to work and has worked the rest of his life. And Albert Bennett become uh, in the jail. So it was easier to get on with them. The, the, the way you really got on with players is trust. And if you had trust so that you knew, they knew you wouldn't let them down. And, and you've got a million stories as a result of that trust. And anyway, it went beyond just story gathering. These guys could become very genuine mates. And um, some of the memories I've got, I'm pleased that I was at my pump in the time you could forge relationships like that, rather than at a time where I could sit at the back of a press conference and get exactly the same as everybody else without asking a solitary single question. And I guess also that kind of goes to the point where you could go to the pub, have a few drinks, and there'd be no one there with a mobile phone getting totally. put on social media. And that, that brings another kind of freedom. Yes, it does. Uh, I always remember, though, you know, what used to happen is one or two punters used to phone up the manager to say, I've seen Joe Bloggs around town. And they did that with Stuart Barraclough. They said, um, the phone Joe and they said, uh, I saw Stuart Barraclough in the Dolce Vita last night. Uh, this wasn't just before a game, it was midweek with no game. So he had every right to be there. Uh, I saw him in there and he was in with uh, John Gibson and Joe Bloggs and Joe Bloggs and he was ratted on rum and coke, etc. Uh, and Joe just said, all right, thank you very much. Put the phone down. Barrett, who was a, a daft extrovert who appeared drunk when he didn't have a drink, in fact, didn't drink. In, he had a pint of coke, but it was rum and coke, according to the punters that phoned in and tried to dob him in. Um, now, these days, with social media the way it is, it would have ripped people to pieces. And when you got in the 80s and... Supermac was the start of the culture of big drinking in football. I'm not just meaning him personally, I mean everybody, you know, Tony Adams and whatever, uh, Paul Merson. It happened to all footballers in those days, and it's not like that anymore. But the heart and soul, in those days, you had to be good as a journalist to, to survive because you were on your own. You interviewed managers one-to-one as well as players. You didn't interview them in a group unless it was a huge thing like the cup final. Uh, so you were as good as you were able to, to get and you were as good as your friendships. So it was a tougher life than now, but it was a much more rewarding life. And you end up with pals for life and these guys are still pals today. Definitely. And just before we get on to... The next name, which uh, is Jackie Milburn. I just want to ask you, 
did because uh, you got on well with Joe Harvey as well. Yeah, I did. And and, and things like that being in the, the bed with Bennett and, and saying, oh, don't tell the press. Did he ever find out about these little stories that you were maybe next to him there or, you know, other yeah, events? Yeah, he did. Uh, he did. And by the way, don't think everything always was hunky-dory. I mean, Joe was a good, good pal of mine because he knew, basically, I cared as much about Newcastle United as he did. Um, so he, he knew I was on their side. But he knew I'd be critical, and um, we fell out hugely on occasions, as we must do, because you know I'm going to look after the Evening Chronicle, and he's going to look after Joe Harvey and Newcastle United. But we both knew we valued each other, and we both basically had respect for each other. So you got together. Other managers like Gordon Lee and Bill McGarry, I'm absolutely delighted to call them not my friends because we had nothing in common. I didn't think they were doing anything for Newcastle, although Gordon Lee took Newcastle to fifth top, but he bought the pants off me in doing it. Um, and he sold the two players that made the excitement for me, which was Hibbert and, and McDonald. Um, so, but yes, uh, it was a privilege. And to me, we tend to forget, you know, that if you look in terms of trophies, Joe Harvey's the most successful manager Newcastle United's ever had, not Bobby Robson and Kevin Keegan, because unbelievably, neither of those won trophies. Unbelievably, because you would expect them to win the FA Cup or the League Cup, and they took Newcastle to second and third finishes in the top flight, which Joe never managed. And I've got treasured, treasured memories of Keegan and Robson, but you can't deny Harvey winning the European Fairs Cup. Um, taking Newcastle to an FA Cup final and skippering them to two FA Cup final wins, uh, that he has a special place in history. Of course, a special anniversary coming up as well later this year. Joe Harvey yes. will be the subject of it. It gives us Conan time to come, as will the Fairs Cup anniversary. Um, on to a, another man who we've covered already um, in, mm. in previous episodes. But nonetheless, we can't talk about great centre-forwards without no, you could. mentioning Jackie Milburn, who again... Um, wasn't just a great footballer, but he was a, he was a, a gentleman. He was a man who loved Newcastle, loved the surrounding area, and again, another good friend of yours. Yeah, yeah. They always say, don't they, that you should never meet your hero because you're going to be disappointed. You've got somebody up on a pedestal, then you meet them in real life, warts and all, and think, oh, what a disappointment. This wasn't. I, when I was a school kid in the 50s, a little tiny tot, Newcastle winning the cup three times in five years, Melbourne was the guy was my hero. I then go to cover Newcastle United. Milburn stopped playing, of course, but he's in the press box for the news of the world at the time. And um, he become a very, very dear friend of mine. And I ended up writing a few books and ghosting a few of the books he wrote. And one was United Scrapbook. He wrote a book called United Scrapbook. And um, it led to a, a wonderful moment, really, because the book somehow found itself into the hands of a guy called Brian Klein, who was a researcher for the This Is Your Life programme. Um, now, he was down in London, and he phoned me up and he said, I've read this book, I realised what Jackie did uh, in the 50s. This has brought him back in the public eye with a book out. I think it's, he'd be a terrific subject with the family background he's got, etc. for This Is Your Life. Would you be prepared to make some inquiries on this behalf? Now, the first thing I had to do was phone Laura, his um, missus, uh, and I had to make certain that Jackie Milburn was out when I phoned her because if the subject found out that he was going to be a subject, the programme was pulled, it didn't take place. 
she was very reticent to start with because she didn't think Jackie would like it. And um, at that time, This Is Your Life had never been uh, filmed on the road. It was all filmed in London and you had to find an excuse. She said, Jackie will never go to London. Didn't like London. Didn't like, just went to play a football game. Just went to Wembley, won the cup and come home. Uh, he didn't like London at all. She said, he'll never go there. Unbelievably, they said for the first time they would come here. And they, they came to Tiny T's television studios. Um, I worked for three months with them on it, contacting footballers, contacting various people. And then on the day of the show, they do a rehearsal in Tiny T's. But they do a rehearsal without the subject. Everybody else is rehearsed with somebody standing in for Jackie Milburn. My, I had to keep Jackie Milburn busy that day. Um, so I arranged, I said, look, come down to St. James's Park. Arthur Cox was manager at the time. I said, come down, we'll have a chat with Arthur Cox about our book. It's just come out the United Scrapbook and get some publicity in Arthur's thoughts. So we did that. Arthur was in on what was happening. It was absolutely wonderful. The only trouble came when it came to lunchtime because... Uh, he wanted to go home for lunch and all of a sudden he'd find these missus isn't there, etc., etc., and perhaps phone up. So I had to try to beg to go for lunch with him. And I eventually conned him into believing. He said, well, come up to the house. He said, uh, I said, well, the missus is probably out shopping because I knew she wasn't in. And he said, yeah, come on now. So we had toast, beans on toast. The toast was absolutely burned to a cinder because dear old Jackie couldn't even make toast, never mind make a meal. Um, and we got him there at night, and the amazing thing is that they, they had, um, Tang Tees had produced uh, a, a card saying that um, it had on the top a chance to score, that was the title, inviting fans to go and see Jackie, who's going to talk about the book we just done. So all the fans who got in for nothing, was I've still got this, this uh, at home, this ticket which says a chance to score with Jackie Milburn and John Gibson. That was to get the fans in, get everybody else in. I went into makeup, got made up with next to Jackie as if I'm going on stage with him. We walked down, out come him and Andrews with a red book. This is your life. I scarped in the audience, Jackie's up there. Um, it was absolutely staggered. The, the, the guest list, there was Bobby and Jack Charlton, come on. Billy Wright, the England skipper, come on. Tom Finney, the legend. Rich Carter, the legend. Bert Troutman, the goalkeeper who had let in Jackie Milburn's header after 45 seconds in the 55 Cup final, flew in from Pakistan to see him. And even his Aunt Bella was shipped across from New York to surprise him. And one of the great and lovely memories I've got, and I've kept it to this day, is a Christmas card, 1981. And on the Christmas card, it says, words cannot express our thanks for getting Jack to the studio. 10 out of 10 in an Oscar. And that was from Laura Milburn. And he said to me, if he'd had any inkling this was going to happen, he wouldn't have allowed it to happen. But it was one, as it turned out, was one of the great nights of his life. And um, I've got the video of that. Um, night as well, which was produced by Time Tees. I only got it in about the last three or four years. Mark Hannon at Newcastle United found it. Oh, I've been searching for it on YouTube and I couldn't find it, so that, that's good to know that you've got a copy. I, I have. Mark Hannon found it for me. Come and knocked on my door in Wickham. Mark Hannon from the, the club, Newcastle yeah. United from the club. Knocked on my door in, in, sorry, in Kingston Park. Opened the door, there's Mark. He said, there's a present for you, Gibbo. And just flung me this tape of, of Jackie Milburn's This Is Your Life. Brilliant. I mean, the other event that really got to him as well was when he was handed, I think it was the, the Freedom of the City 
by uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, and there was a big, a big dinner, wasn't there, in the late eighties? Yeah, there was a big dinner at the Civic Centre, um, <clears throat> in which it was a sport Newcastle dinner uh, when the Duke of Edinburgh, no less, come up to present the award to Jackie, and then Cardinal Hume, who was a Newcastle-born guy, um, <clears throat> was uh, got the freedom of the city at the same time as Jackie Melbourne and said the greatest honour he had in his life uh, was meeting his hero, Jackie Melbourne. <clears throat> Considering he met the Pope and everybody else, I thought that was quite a, a, not a mean thing. That uh, The difference between life then, you know, for superstars, we were talking about cash and what people get and, and with Supermac and today's stars. Jackie, it was even worse in the 50s when Newcastle was successful because they, they got peanuts and... There was, a, there was a celebration dance at the Oxford Galleries uh, for Newcastle on one of the three wins. And um, at this, all the girls, the wives of the players, were going to be presented with a little token for, by the club. And the word got out to the players there was going to be handbags. And they thought, oh, there was a rumour started that handbags would be stuffed with money because they, they made about 15 quid a week. Uh, be stuffed with money, you know, this is a bonus for winning the cup, brilliant. So the players were very excited. Mrs George and I went up, got her bag, she's walking back, one of the first ones, and, and the um, handle and the bag snapped. And Jackie's telling us the tales, we said, great, it's the weight of the money. It's a, so they're all scrummaging the handbags, and it's all packed with old copies of the Evening Chronicle handbags. There's no money in it whatsoever. And it turned out that the club had got a, a deal, 30 bags for 17 quid. And uh, that's what they got for winning the cup. Before the 51 Cup final, just to emphasise the difference with today, before the 1951 Cup final, when they beat Blackpool 2-0, Jackie Milburn both goals, and that denied Stanley Matthews his one medal he'd never had. Got it later. The players brought out a, a souvenir brochure, the players themselves. They set up trestles in the car park at St James's Park and they sold the brochures to fans coming to the game from the trestles till quarter past two on the Saturday afternoon, then rushed inside, got changed, went out and played the league game. They sold souvenir programmes of the 1951 celebrations from trestles in the car park, they themselves, till three quarters an hour before kick-off. That's what they had to do to earn a couple of quid off something as big as that. Oh, absolutely amazing. But I mean, I mean, on the pitch, he was a man who was just unbelievable. Would you... See, he was the best striker Newcastle ever had, or are we going to mention a name later down the, the road, do you think? I think he's in the top three, which were quite unique. Uh, the top three in my lifetime was uh, Jackie Milburn, Supermac and Alan Shearer. Um, and I feel so privileged for all those three to have come in my lifetime and to have seen them all live and playing live. Um, but I've got to say that while Milburn was my boyhood hero and while Supermac is the dearest of friends, Alan Shearer for me is the best centre forward Newcastle United have ever had. Hey, we're going to mention Shearer in a moment and just a final question because obviously once Milburn retired he went on to work as a journalist. Yep, yep. How good was his copy? Great question. If I'd been his sports editor, the 
the plus I would have said was that was off a good byline, Jackie Milburn. So what he said was fans would want to hear. Secondly, contacts second and on. I mean, he, he, he's, he's skipper of the 50s cup final, Joe Ovi, was Newcastle United manager. So Len Shack, Jackie Milburn and Joe Ovi had a game of golf every Thursday. And in that game of golf, both Shack and Milburn, who worked for Sunday papers, got their stories. So that the whole week's work was a game of golf with the manager of, of Newcastle United. The reason I wouldn't have employed Jackie is something you mentioned early on. If Newcastle lost 16-0 and the, and the centre-forward missed five open goals and two penalties, he would say they were unlucky. And he couldn't bring himself to criticise anything to do with Newcastle United and Prince. So uh, he got some very good stories. His byline was worth its weight in gold. His ability to criticise was not. How are you doing there? It is David from the David McWilliams podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. We're all following the government's advice right now. We're staying in. It's a little bit cocooning, but it's all working. So while you're staying at home, here's a recommendation of another great podcast. It's the Blind Boy podcast. He's an old mate. He's a great skin. He has extraordinarily interesting views of the world. Check it out. On to uh, another name, um, a man who whose goal scoring record actually isn't too bad. Um, well, we're going to mention two here. Um, we're going to mention Ron, Ron McGarry, who scored yep. 46 and 132 mm. uh, between 63 and 67. And a, a fellow Chronicle columnist in Mick Quinn, who, Absolutely. who is a, a, a right laugh. Um, when we eventually do get him on the podcast, I think we'll have to use a beeping machine. Sorry, a bleeping machine. Well, that's all you might have on the podcast, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and we, we were talking just before we started about, you know, about them and the similarities, mm. you know, 20 odd years, 30 odd years apart there. But, um, well, I'll let you go because I've, I've seen highlights of Quinn. I've never seen highlights of McGarry, but I mean... They, yeah. they were in, in lots of ways, they were very much alike. They were both relatively short for a centre-forward. They weren't six foot three or anything of that nature. They were exceptionally stocky, huge thighs, which give them the advantage of holding off centre-halves. And if neither of them had been in football, I swear both of them could have made a living as a comedian. They were naturally funny, funny men, terrific men. And not bad old goal scorers. I mean, uh, one Mc- Joe Harvey built three teams at Newcastle United. Um, he built the side that won promotion from the second division in, in the mid-60s. He built the 69 European Face Cup side and he built the 74 FA Cup final side around Supermac. And Ron McGarry was the centre-forward in his first side, which was the one that won promotion. And in that season, Newcastle went up, promoted, and went back into the big time. He was top goal scorer, Ron McGarry, 16 goals in 31 games. He was injured for the run-in, so missed some games. But he scored 16 goals in 31. And um, his background was sheer boy's own. I mean, he was discovered at Workington, by Joe Harvey at Workington, and flogged to Bolton. Um, And when Joe first saw him, he was actually in the army. Uh, One guy, he was in the army full-time, and he played as an amateur for Workington. Um, And once that day, he didn't turn up, and Joe thought, where the hell's McGarry? And 
it turned out that he was playing rugby league because the expenses that the rugby league side in working were giving him were higher than the expenses the football club were giving him. And he, he wasn't on a wage. Uh, so Joe signed him up immediately at, at, at Workington. And then um, he went to Bolton. And, he, and when Joe had a fashion aside up here, he thought, I'll go away and get this cheeky blighter who will do a terrific job for us. Uh, Ron himself christened himself Cassius Clay. Um, because he was the a mouth, and he christened himself Cassius Gay, and he 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 printed cards which used to hand out, you know, which would normally have your address on, and, and it would have on have goals will travel, Ron McGarry to get in touch with him, and he was very much part of the dressing room and making Newcastle. Uh, Bond in those days. I always remember in the promotion season, Newcastle went away to Coventry. I mean, they had a tremendous season, but they went away to Coventry and they were 4-1 down at half-time and they trudged into the dressing room and Stan Anderson, who was skipper and did a magnificent job at Newcastle, but was a very serious-minded sort of guy. Uh, slumped down, decimated on the bench, and Ron McGarry's sitting next to him and, and Ron looked at him, saw that he was distressed, put his arm around him. He said, he said, never mind, Stan. Don't worry, son. We'll be all right. We've got the wind with us second off. They were four on down. But even, even Anderson had to break into a smile at that. And um, he was tremendous at doing that. He went away and he played in Australia. He went and signed for Barron. The typical quote when, when Gibbo phoned him up and said, what about today? I said, I always wanted to be a barrow boy. Um, but he's back up here, living up here now, and um, in his 70s, and his wit and humour is as funny as it ever was. And Quinny, those years later, reminded me a lot of Ron McGarry, both in his style of playing centre-forward, both pure finishers, don't want to know build-up, you know, leave me out. I'll be in the the penalty area. Get the ball in there. I score, and we'll kick off again. Um, but with the humour, the way of playing, and don't underestimate the crucial goals they were capable of scoring. Uh, they would certainly score goals today in the Newcastle United, the current Newcastle side. And how important is that humour in a dressing room, especially when, like you say, if you are four one down a half time, or because that's, oh. that's remember, you know, Quinny joined the very turbulent time at Newcastle as well so I mean yes he did the humour would have been a, a nice relief for the players oh without without a shadow of a doubt and and it's infectious it's amazing how most of the time you in both cases I think these two players were signed as much for their personality as for their goal scoring exploits because Joe had dismantled the side at Newcastle which was a very aged side to and brought in the McGarry's and everybody else that he brought in and Newcastle, the ball legal was in was the guy that signed McQuinn, and he looked for the same for the same sort of response, not just on the park, but throughout. And of course, as you know, his first game home to Leeds, Mickey Quinn scores four. Now, very difficult. I mean, how many people have done that on their home debut? I mean, uh, the only one that strikes me is is topping that that I can remember off the top of my head on his home debut. Supermax scored. Three, and you can't say that was better because it was against the Liverpool All Stars in the top division. 
this was Leeds a division down. And uh, Lenshack scored six on his W against Newport County for Newcastle. Uh, but Quinney was made after he, after he scored those uh, those four. Um, he's one of the blokes that he was probably the last bloke I knocked about with socially um, in Newcastle because of age differences later on. Uh, nights on town and um, they put ears on you. Uh, a night on tongue with with Quinny, uh, hilarious. But whether you could remember the end of it was very debatable. Um, and we used to do in those days. You could do a lot of talkings, and we did a lot, where you could actually go across Newcastle and Sunderland, which is quite amazing. You would take them down into onto Tyneside and into County Down, and regularly I would host the show with Quinny as the Newcastle United striker against either Marco Gabbiadini or Don Goodman, who's on Sky now, don't think, as the Sunderland striker, and would do a show in a social club and the, and the place would be packed with Sunderland fans and Newcastle fans who didn't end up at closing time knocking seven bells out of each other. It was, it was quite amazing. There was huge rivalry, and uh, etc., etc. But there were great times. I think one of the distinctions... Um, uh, Mick Scott is that while he was signed by the Bowler Eagle he also inherited Kevin Keegan at the start of the entertainers and he's the only bloke I know probably that played for Keegan at Newcastle United and won't just wax lyrical about Kevin Keegan um, and that's ironic because Keegan had been his hero when he was a kid in Liverpool. Obviously, Keegan, everything he did with Liverpool. And when he was growing up on a council estate, Mick used to pretend he was Kevin Keegan, knocking the ball against the brick walls, and etc., etc. So when he heard Kevin King was coming to Newcastle, his idol, he thought, this is the greatest thing that's going to happen to me. Uh, but inevitably, the Messiah ended up calling Quinny a Judas. Um, and once you do that with KK, once a Judas, always a Judas. Once KK didn't quickly forgive anybody that crossed them. And um, the style of play McQuinn was, was never going to suit Keegan. He, he got rid of Ray Verardi for the same reason, because he liked beautiful touch, clever build-up. He got rid of Verardi and uh, brought in Beardsley. And Beardsley was a Keegan type of player. McQuinn and Verardi, good, good goal scorers, weren't a Keegan type. And um, Keegan, uh, Quinney had been such a superstar at Newcastle and scored so many goals and the fans loved him. You know, who ate all the pies and all that. Uh, the fans loved him. And so he took very badly to being dropped. And um, unfortunately, when he went to Portsmouth, where he used to be for a weekend, he said to a local a hack down there who asked him what Keegan's style of play was, that uh, it was a shambles, the training, etc., etc. That hack carried the story, which, if it was off the record, was naughty, if it was off the record. And that's why KK called him a Judas, and he was finished at the club from then on in. Although he was forced to play him in one match against Portsmouth when Gavin Peacock was injured, and it was against his old club, Portsmouth. And ironically, Quinney thought, this is my way back in with KK. We, we might be able to patch up our differences, etc., etc. So he's getting changed downstairs, ready to go out for the match. And suddenly the door's open and it's a physio and he says, uh, phone call for Mickey Quinn. And Keegan bristled and said, phone call for Mickey Quinn? Didn't 
that was it. Didn't I know there's a match on? We're going out in 10 minutes. And he said, well, I'm, he said, tell him, can't I take it? And the physio said, well, I'm afraid it's the chairman on the phone, uh, Mr. Keegan. And the chairman was John Hall. And so Keegan had to let him take the call. And it was John Hall saying, lovely to have you back because you're yeah, the goal scorer and that in the side today. He said, if you score today, I'll send you a creative champagne down to the dressing room for every goal you score today. Uh, it's a, OK, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Put the phone. Went out. Keegan seething at the phone call having happened. Went out, scored two, scored a third one. It was 3-1 Newcastle one. Scored a third one, was choked offside. He's back in the dressing room afterwards. The same physio comes in, says, phone call for Mr Quinn. Keegan's now crawling up the wall. And it was Sir John to say, wonderful display, absolutely terrific. The third goal wasn't offside, so I'm sending three crates of champagne down the dressing room. He sent three crates of champagne. So the plus was that Quinny got three crates of champagne, which he shared with the players, and the minus is that confirmed that he was going to leave Newcastle United under Keegan, and sure enough, he did. He did, and it's a shame, because I imagine um, him and Terry Mack, there would have been some stories there, because they're very jovial characters. Well, again, you see, again, you would think that... um, Keegan would have gone well with Quinny when he come because not only was there the Scouse link, Quinny being a Scouser and, and playing for Liverpool, um, but they both absolutely loved the horses. They absolutely loved the horses, um, Keegan and Quinny, so you would have thought. And, of course, Terry Mack was the go-between, and Quinny did get on well with Terry Mack, um, and he was the same sort of extrovert character, really, as Terry Mack was. But Terry Mack, first and foremost, was a Kevin Keegan man and was always going to be that. And um, sadly, I love Quinny to death, but everybody has got a certain level and I think we can complain if Kevin Keegan went on, give us Andy Cole, Peter Beardsley, Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand. I don't think... The Geordies were shortchanged for strikers from Keegan. Not at all. And that nicely takes us into the next two names. Again, mm. we've covered one of these in a previous episode, and but like I say, with Jackie Milburn, we can't mention great centre forwards without mentioning of the name of Alan Shearer. And we're also going to talk about Les Ferdinand's. Um, I mean, to have both these oh. in starting eleven, many people thought it couldn't be done. Oh. Uh, People said openly when Shearer came, Les was already here. He had completed one season as Newcastle's number nine, officially when the number nine, which he had to give up when Shearer came, which he wasn't too chuffed about, although he got on brilliantly with Alan. He wasn't chuffed about giving up the nine shirt. But everybody said that Newcastle United, Kevin Keegan, had made a mistake because there were two target, man, target men that would be running into the same space, that would be trying to do the same job. It wouldn't work. It worked to such an extent that Alan Shearer says to this day that the best partner he ever had in the whole of his footballing career was with Les Ferdinand, which was only for one season at Newcastle before Ferdinand was sold. And when you think he had Chris Sutton at Blackburn when they won the Premier League title and he had Teddy Sheringham with England, that is some accolade to to Les Ferdinand. But... um, Alan Shearer, I got to know Alan well before he come up here through Jack Hickson. Jack Hickson was a very great friend of mine. Uh, he was the guy that worked at the Central Station and just unearthed talent 
everywhere. Andy unearthed Alan Shearer up here and sent him down to Southampton because that's where he was working at the time, Hickson. And as a 17-year-old, Alan made his debut for Southampton against Arsenal, scored a hat-trick, immediately phoned Jack Hickson up on Tyneside and said, how do I handle this, Jack, with a prisoner? Jack, who was always politically correct and very cautious in quotes and that, advised him from that day and ever since. And... Um, he become a second father to Alan Shearer, uh, who took advice from Jack Hickson. When he was England's skipper, Newcastle United skipper, and he still took advice. He still would phone up Jack Hickson or go down to his house at the coast at Whitley Bay at least once a week. And um, when Jack died and he, his funeral in colour coats, three people were asked to speak by the Hickson family in the pulpit. Uh, because they meant so much to Jack. Uh, and one was Laurie McManamy, the big Geordie, who was his manager at Southampton when uh, when Hickson was working for Laurie. The second was Alan Shearer himself, and the third was me. And um, when I saw Alan Shearer, the hardest centre-forward you could ever wish to meet, with a tear in his eye in the pulpit talking about Jack, I knew it was OK for motion to over come me and it and it did but Doc, Alan was brought up whereby if you crossed Alan Shearer there was no second chance and that was perfectly alright because everybody wanted a slice of Alan because he was so big but if you were loyal to Alan you had a friend for life and when I went into difficulty with Gates at our own Gates had had them for 11 years lost my sponsor mid-season didn't think I was going to see out the season I launched a save Gates campaign up here and two of my mates come and said, we'll put shows on, not charge a penny, and we'll put shows on, all the proceeds go to Gates. One was Alan Shearer at St James's Park with a huge talk-in, the other was Gaza at a dinner at the Lancastrian Suite in Dunstan. And um, both filled the places, and that was typical. And I went with Alan Shearer a couple of years ago over to Hong Kong with Walls End Boys Club for five days, and you suddenly realised what a global star he was. He was met at the airport. There was no announcements that he was going out. The word had just dribbled around. When we flew in, there was Chinese kids in Newcastle United strips at the airport queuing and squealing for Alan Shearer. And everywhere in the hotel for the four days or so that we were there, we came down in a lift outside would be Hong Kong kids standing with autograph books, uh, selfies, etc., all for Shearer. And he had time for each and every one of them. And um, Les, who played alongside him, maybe he's a different sort of guy, uh, but a, a wonderful player, and they dovetailed tremendously. I mean, Les Ferdinand had more birds than the Birdman of Alcatraz. I mean, he was incredibly handsome-looking. All the young ladies adored him and fancied him. He did better than David Ginola, um, which is which is saying something. Um, he was, ironically, because Newcastle at the time, their, their transfer record was going up each time they bought somebody. And Ferdinand arrived before Shearer, of course. He was bought in the same week, same week as Warren Barton, the fullback, who beat the transfer record, then, then Ferdinand did the same. Um, and the interesting thing with that one, Ferdinand signed, 
six million pound. His a non-league club where he'd started non-league uh, had a clause in the contract when they sold him to QP, QPR, and they got six hundred thousand pound if Newcastle six million. Um, as a knock-on. And the incredible thing in that week, we signed Barton and we signed Ferdinand and they both started in non-league football. They hadn't come up, as did Stuart Pearce, who came to Newcastle at one time. They hadn't come up just at the top of the tree, they'd started at the bottom of the tree. And I went with Gates to play Hayes in the non-league and there was a, a huge um, shirt of, of Ferdinand in the boardroom, signed by Les, framed, and I said... No wonder you've got that up there. You've got £600,000 for that. And um, he was just a terrific bloke who believed him and Shearer were going to be together until the end of both of their careers, which Shearer was at Newcastle, of course, and was absolutely distraught when he was sold out of Newcastle by Kenny Dalglish because Kevin Keegan had taken to his toes, of course, and Dalglish only wanted one striker, not two, and that one was going to be Shearer. And he sold him off to Spurs. And ironically, while that deal was going through, uh, Shearer got a very bad injury at Goodison Park. And Newcastle had the audacity to phone Ferdinand on his mobile while he was going over to uh, White Hart Lane to say, Shearer's injured, would you like to come back and play for us? And I think off was the second word he used. What we got, having had Shearer and Ferdinand, what we got from Dalglish then was John Doll Thomason, Ketspire, Andreas Anderson, and Russian Barnes, who at one time at Liverpool would have been two of the greatest signings imaginable. But by the time we got them, they were old age pensioners with one foot in the grave. And, um, you know, we, we sacrificed Ferdinand for nothing. And that was the breakup of the entertainers well and truly underway. I mean, what is Shearer like off the pitch? Because like you've briefly mentioned there, I mean, he will be harassed for autographs, yeah. photographs all, all the time. But we've seen this week, he was uh, awarded uh, the Northeast Sports Personality of the Year for his work with, with charity, the by Robson Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, and in a way, he's, he's quite unique, isn't he? Because obviously he works for the BBC, they're based down in Salford. He could quite easily live down there, but he doesn't. He still lives up in the northeast. Correct. Correct. He loves Newcastle, and you know he is. He, he is Newcastle. He, he is. He, he is. Yeah. What is he like? Off yeah, he, he is the Newcastle United man. I mean, he could have gone to Manchester United instead of us uh, to Ferguson. And now I know when he came to us, uh, we just finished second top, and we had Keegan, and he thought we can win the title. There's no question about that. Newcastle United and Keegan took to his toes within half a season of that. Um, but he, gone, he could have gone to Ferguson, who was guaranteed medals. But the minute, New- and he had his house picked out in Manchester, in, in Cheshire, where he was going to live, and came here instead. You, BBC now in Sullivan, but the, when he started with the BBC, they were in London. And he, he could have lived in London, or he could have lived in Manchester. He's got daughters in London, but... He's very much a Geordie. He's very, very proud of the fact that he's got the goal-scoring record here. Um, He's an interesting character because on the surface, you would think very tough to get to know really well because he always has that shield that all genuine superstars must have between them and the public to a certain extent. But underneath it... 
he's now, I think on match today now, he's broadened up his opinions are, are very, very good. He doesn't sit on the fence anymore and he produces the odd bit of humour. But away from the cameras, he's one of the, and he's one of the funniest guys I've ever met. And a lot of a lot of punters would never dream of that because if he was criticised, it was Dua, wasn't it, and said his idea of fun is to crease all the fence on a Sunday morning. Um, that was the way he was perceived. He's one of the funniest guys, and everybody will tell you in the dressing room, he's the mickey taker. He, he will be behind the daft things that happen in dressing rooms. It used to be Gaza, then it was him. You can understand it with Gaza. You can't understand it as much with, with Shearer. But he is a, a, a funny funny guy but he only lets so many people see that side of it and it's a natural protection because it's 17 he was a star hat trick against arsenal in on his debut he was a, a star and the only way to survive was the way he has survived and that's all down to jack Hickson advising him on which way to go and he remained so loyal to jack after that um and I still think it carries the Geordie flag magnificently today, which is why his treatment at Newcastle United when he was fleetingly manager and the statue standing outside the ground instead of inside the ground, I think is one of the greatest travesties of justice ever. And also just a tip that on the day we are recording this, which is the 19th, is uh, Alan Shearer made his England debut on the 19th of February scored as well so that many many yeah, years ago I was going to say many many years ago and what a career lay ahead uh, for him and the fact that so much of it was up here I mean he should have been here for nothing when you think he was a schoolboy here and actually had a trial at Newcastle he should have been here for nothing we had a pay a world record fee 15 million pound to bring him up but he's ended up as our leading goal scorer and I think that will stand for an eternity because players aren't loyal to clubs for as long as as Shearer was to be able to beat that record. That record takes some beating if you stay here for a decade or more and people these days don't stay here for that long because it's in the interest of agents to move them on and get their percent of the deal. So will that be broken again? I don't think for a heck of a long time. No, most certainly not. Um, from one legend to a man who many may have forgotten about, um, we're going to speak about two. One man you won't definitely, and everyone knows the name Win Davies. Um, Absolutely. 40 goals in um, 181 appearances between 62 and 66. And then Paul Canal, um, not so prolific, 13 49, but still not a bad record. No. Um, and he played. Between seventy three and seventy eight. Yeah, he did, and he, um, I think he was on the bench in the League Cup. Uh, um, uh, again, he's still living up here, still living on the uh, Tyneside. Uh, amazing, amazing lad. Uh, Paul didn't take a walk on the wild side; he lived there permanently. Uh, he was the complete extrovert, um, dark hair, moustache, looked like Burt Reynolds at, at his best uh, in those days and did a, a terrific job both with Newcastle United and with the ladies. Um, uh, we used to, in those days, we used to go from St. James's Park on a Saturday night down to Roy's Two Room, which is a restaurant about 200 yards down from the football club, where we used to say, we'll meet in the upper six, quarter seven. 
um, and we'd go in, have a meal, we knew Roy ever so well, and a drink. And there'd be a few of the lads there, Super Mac and various people, and Paul Canell was always one of them. And I remember this day, he played for the first team and scored. And he come down and I said, hey, Paul, well done, son, terrific, good goal, etc. Et and he says, I give away, he says, but I'm still on 30 quid a week. Yes, you what? You're still on 30 quid a week. So later on that night, I pulled him to one side. I said, because they knew they could say anything in front of me that was off the record, because that's the way you had to be. I said, you know what you said about that 30 quid a week? It, can I use that on the record? Because it, it off identifies you with the fans that you're on their sort of wages and not the superstar wages like the rest of the team. And he said, sure you can. It's true. He'd just been an apprentice and then in the reserves and he was still on that contract. Now, after training on a Monday, we used to meet up again at the Elden Grill, which is, was just by um, Gray's Monument for a, a pint. As you can tell, we're like liquid lunches in those days. And the boys used to come down from training in and there. So on the Monday, following that on the Saturday, and the Saturday night, in the two room and he tells us he's on 30 quid and I've carried the story in Monday's paper with his permission. Um, one of the lads comes in after him and we are up at the bar having a drink and he said, hey, I've just seen a placard outside in those days on the lamppost, placards, chronicle. He says, Is it outside and it says, United Star on 30 quid a week on on the placard. And, I, and immediately Canel goes, whoops. And all of a sudden, full of bravado on the Saturday night, of course you can do it, and it was totally and utterly true, of course, he's, su he's suddenly flapping. Uh, but the interesting thing, and he didn't deny it, of course, because uh, he, he had said it and it was true and I had his permission, but the interesting thing was that I then go back to the office and I get a phone call from Newcastle United back in the office of this, and I think, here we go, here's the earful. And it was Newcastle United not denying that he was on 30 quid a week or um, saying what a swine I was to print it, but actually trying to justify everything and revealing the details of a player's career voluntarily, uh, contract voluntarily. And they say, ah, but he gets that much in appearance money and that much if Newcastle win, and that adds up to that much to make the wage look better than the 30 pounds. So I'm writing all this down. And in the end, I said, but... I would just like to ask you one question. In the summer, if Newcastle don't play, he gets 30 quid a week. And said, that's all right. I said, that's all I need to know. Thank you very much. And I carried the story with it. And Canel tells a story that a few weeks later he was called in and given a rise, of course. So we did him great. But it was the story, you know, a Newcastle United centre forward scoring a goal on the Saturdays on 30 quid a week. There we go. Um, but he went off... After he played for Newcastle around the, the 76 League Cup final and he played in, in Gordon Lee's side, uh, he went off to America to sign for Washington Diplomats. And um, he, was a, he would be the first to tell you that he was an absolute playboy and um, lived life to the full. And as a single lad, he had every reason to do so. Um, and while he played for the diplomats, he, he went in one morning on a Monday and the PR department come rushing down in the dressing room and said, Paul, can I have a word? And I said, yeah, of course you can, what's up? They said, what the hell were you doing in Winston's on Saturday night? Winston's was a local nightclub. And he said, well, I was just uh, 
out for a few berries with the lads and uh, they said yes but you went across and pulled a young lady got up the dance with her and then exchanged numbers he said well so what i'm a single lad he said yes but her name's Susan Ford, and she's the president's daughter. And he was, so all of a sudden, he was all over the papers with this, this English centre forward that's pulled the president's daughter sort of thing. Uh, and that was typical, Paul, and he lived life out there. America was just taking off football-wise. He was the centre forward. He did ex- everything extrovert. He looked like a god. He scored goals. He wasn't frightened, he was a kamikaze pilot and he did extrovert things like drop his shorts in the middle of a game and uh, I mean the fans out there adored him and the public did because they were trying to sell football to the Americans and to do that football had to be showbiz and Canel was showbiz. Um, he was showbiz to such an extent, I must tell you this story when he was at Newcastle, um, he was on the fringe of the first team and a lot of the apprentices and him used to go on holiday in the summer to Benidorm, which was the place in those days to go. So he went on a holiday to Benidorm with all his guys and they get in the pub one night and they're talking away and uh, they identify themselves or we're young players with Newcastle United. And the waiter said, would you like a game? We'll have a, we'll have a game on Saturday sort of thing. Uh, aye, aye. So they have a kickabout on the Saturday with the waiters and they, they all enjoy it. And the waiter says, look, you're here for a fortnight. How about a game on Wednesday night with Benidorm, the local team? Like, you know, they said, ah, yeah, a bit of fun, like, etc., etc." So all the bills went round town, Benidorm v Newcastle United uh, on the Wednesday night. And the Newcastle kids were Paul Cannell, Alan Kennedy, that played for Liverpool in um, in the European Cup, Derek Craig sent off, David Crossan and Billy Coulson. Once they knew the game was on, they went round Benidorm looking for other footballers on holiday because that was the place they all went. They got Mervyn Day, the West Ham goalkeeper, Phil Bosma, they played for Liverpool, Ray Graydon who played for Burnley and put them in the Newcastle United side. Now the loudspeakers in the meantime is going all round this holiday resort telling people that... Newcastle United are playing Benetton in the local stadium on Wednesday night. 2,200 people turned up. It was an out-and-out draw, and there was a report of it carried in the English-speaking Spanish paper, which was seen the next week by a Newcastle United guy who was on holiday with his family, phoned me up, sent us the article across, and I carried the the. A headline, the match that never was. Newcastle United are back in Europe and playing Benidorm in the North North. And, of course, um, Gordon Lee went absolutely crackers with uh, Paul Cannell, who was the leading light of it. But Joe Harvey, we were still involved in Newcastle on the scouting side at that time, come, come in the ground two days later, saw Paul and said, Hey, Paul, how you doing, mate? He said, Great, gaffer. He said, um, I nearly come to see you in Benidorm. He said, oh, what's that? He said, I've been on holiday there with the missus. The missus saw the placards saying, uh, Newcastle are playing Benidorm. Newcastle and I are playing Benidorm on Wednesday night. And she said, shall we go? What team is it? Is it Gordon Lee bought the team across? And George said to his missus, no, we'll not bother. It'll be that daft bugger Canel. His, his mates will be having a, a knockabout. And sure enough, it was. And, George, and that was 
that was it. And it was the match that never was. And um, I think Canel ended up getting fined and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I doubt how many people that watched that game realised that the young left-back that played for Newcastle United, Alan Kennedy, who had signed for Liverpool, not only win the European Cup a couple of times, but scored the goal that won the European Cup in Paris and then scored the shootout goal in Rome that won Liverpool the Cup again. But that's without playing for Newcastle United in the 74 Cup final, of course, and the 76, did he play in the 76 League Cup? Um, but uh, there were fun, fun days. Uh, you can't imagine those days now, can you? You couldn't imagine them during that last week in Spain. Um, <laughs> Win Davies, I mean, it's another kind of look to what will be uh, a, a bittersweet anniversary in many ways because he was part of the side that won the, the Fairs Cup. Um if only we'd won a trophy since. Mm. But nonetheless, a brilliant centre-forward. Oh, I mean, he was one of the real reasons why we won the European Face Cup. Uh, because they couldn't handle him. The, the continental sides couldn't handle him. They thought football was literally that, foot on ball. When Newcastle played it up top, driven it into the head of Davies, at about six foot three, who was brilliant here, who had this ability to leap, but stay there a split second longer than everybody else before he, he come back down. They just could not handle him. His nickname was Win the Leap for that reason, which was the old um, Davies that won the long jump was nicknamed that, and and, and so so was Win. Um, a, a different sort of centre forward to all the others. He wasn't quick like Milburn and Supermac. And he didn't have a lethal shot in in his boot like Shaver. He was all about the air. And he wasn't um, an extrovert like Supermac. He was very much an introvert. For example, when he when he signed for Newcastle, when Joe Harvey signed him, he played for Bolton and the side that played up here when Newcastle won to go to get promoted. And he was their danger man and he gave us a roasting at St James's Park until John McGrath under orders from Harvey. Um, crippled him with tackles which were slightly round the above knee height um, and Newcastle won the game but we went to sign him as a result of that because Joan said this guy will make us went to sign him and went over to Bolton and then there was Joe and a couple of directors Wolf Taylor Fenton Braithwaite talked with um, Wynn as well as the club and then just before everything was agreed before he signed Wynn said oh would you mind Mr Harvey if I spoke to my mother. And, and Joe said, uh, because Wynne wasn't married and, and has never been married in his life. Um, and Joe said, sure. So he phones up from the, the, the boardroom in Bolton, phones up his mum, who happens to be standing in a telephone kiosk at the end of the road in Carnarvon, just up from the Carnarvon Castle, because she hadn't a phone at home. She's standing in the coin box waiting for Wynne to phone her there. He phones her up and he proceeds to talk to her about the move in Welsh. And Joe Harvey said, what's this? Bloody man talking about what's going on here? And he talked in Welsh to his mum, put the phone down, got the, he told that he could sign for Newcastle and came to Newcastle. Now, Joe... Loved him to death. Joe loved him to death. But to the public and to the press of the time, he appeared aloof and distant. 
In fact, I found out since it was mainly because he was shy. Yeah, you know, he was a, a, a Welsh boy that still spoke Welsh. He still saw Welsh as his number one language rather than English. And um, he kept himself to himself. And he was a nightmare for a press man because he never got a story out of him. He didn't do quotes or he didn't do anything. And it was said that while he was on the big wage at Newcastle, because he was the number nine legend, and he, he, he could justify that, it would say he would. He was had this reputation for being tight. It said he didn't go and buy a newspaper. He went and negotiated for the newspaper with W. H. Smith when he was in there. And he used to get picked up on the team coach at Chester Street in the marketplace on a Friday to go to away games. And he used to buy food to bring on the coach. But he bought the bruised food because it was cheaper. And he would bring bring this on the coach. Actually, I've got to know him ever since. He was quite distant when we were. Reporting, he was just not a press man's dream at all. But I've got to know him ever so well since it, through the Fairs Club, which I'm president of, and we've had trips to see him. And he's apologised to me and said, Gibbo, one of the worst things I did was not make friends with people like yourself when I was up there. Uh, and I explained why, because he had this crippling shyness. And he is now a fascinating lad to talk to. And... Um, the pity is he would have probably enjoyed his career a lot more had he been able to adopt that when he was here. He went on from Newcastle United to play for Manchester United in Manchester City. So he had something about him and he was as brave as a lion and absolutely brave as a lion. Um, and the amount of battering he took during Newcastle winning the European Fairs Cup, cheekbone smashed, nose smashed, everything... And you couldn't put him off. Um, never a major goal scorer. And certainly in the first division here, had a very poor return on goals. But in Europe, they just couldn't handle him. And with Pop Robson sniffing round to uh, wrap things up from knockdowns, we just killed sides. Well, most certainly. Um, on to our final two names there. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. um, one name that Newcastle fans... Of definitely my age will most certainly remember as one of the biggest flops of the last uh, 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, that is Garrosh, yeah. World Cup winner in 1998, arrived in Newcastle just after that tournament. Yeah. I think he played two games, perhaps. Four. Four games. And was then shipped off to Rangers. And uh, it just didn't work for him. No, it didn't. I mean, you can imagine, I was going over to France to cover the 1998 World Cup final. And it came out that Stefan Givar should sign for Newcastle. So he had to play in the World Cup finals first for France and then come over and join Newcastle. But Newcastle United had the centre forward, who we didn't know they were going to win the World Cup at the time, but they were one of the favourites. And I'd signed him, so I thought, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it exciting? Go across, keep an eye on this guy, etc., etc. Very early on on the trip, I was in my hotel and I was introduced to this guy, Peter Story, uh, who was scouting at the time for West Ham. And he was doing the sort of story, the thing that Graham Carr did at Newcastle. You know, he based a lot of the time in France, trying to get the bargains out of France for West Ham. He later went on and worked with Harry Redknapp at Portsmouth when they won the FA Cup. So Peter Story, I'm in the bar having a few sherbets with him and I thought, 
nice little story here. Uh, file a wing it back to the Cron, carry it for the punters back home. So I said, you must have seen a lot of Givos, uh, Peter, when you've been around football over here. He says, yeah, I've seen a, a lot of them with Oxair, et cetera, et cetera. I said, um, good signing, question mark. And he said, no, not good enough. Physicality will never do it in the, in, in the top flight. Uh Scores goals for Oxair, but won't find he, he, he can score goals for Newcastle United. So at that moment, I just saw a wonderful story flying out the window on the wings of, and I watched with trepidation, thinking, what have we got here? So there wasn't a story at all. And a wonderful French side went all the way through and won that World Cup. Givos was selected to start nine-tenths of the games at centre-forward and never scored a solitary single goal. Now, you could say that must be unique for a centre-forward of a side that wins the World Cup to go through the whole tournament and not score. But fans seem to breed them because, of course, Giroud's just done it in this last World Cup when they won the World Cup again. He played centre-forward and he didn't score a goal. But um, Givos, when he came over here... um, you know, this France had won the World Cup on the home territory and he hadn't got a goal. I mean, Jeff Hurst must have looked at that and thought, I scored three in a final when, when England were on home territory and Givos didn't. When he came over here, he scored a scruffy goal, if you remember, on his debut against Liverpool. He only played four times. He'd been bought by Dalglish and he was rid, got rid of by Wood Hullet, who just didn't rate him whatsoever. And later on, he was voted the worst centre-forward that was ever signed to play in the Premier League, which is not the impact I think he was expecting to make. How did Newcastle make that mistake then? Because surely they must have gone over and scouted him. Did they just see the goals he'd scored in League One? Yeah, they, they, they saw him score goals for X and thought, that's quality. But I mean, you know, it doesn't always follow because it's a step up in class. I mean... Newcastle, Kevin Keegan had Kelly score a pile of goals for Newcastle when they won promotion into the Premier League. Um, He scored a hat-trick alongside Andy Cole's hat-trick on the last day against Leicester when they won the title and never kicked another ball for Newcastle because Keegan was of the opinion the step-up would be too great for him. It was the same with Jack John didn't rate him as a a Republic of Ireland top striker. A lot of players have their level. There's a lot of players will say, is Dwight Gale a championship centre-forward? Because he scored a pile of goals for us there and he, he, sc- he scored a lot for West Brom there, but will he score them in the top division? And and he, Givos, just infinitely hadn't that ability to do it. Um, but at that time, it was the start of people looking into France. And you've got to bear in mind, Jackie, the manager of France, Rated him enough to start every game for France, but he was surrounded by people like Zinedine Zidane. Well, I mean, you know, it, you could carry a passenger with, with Zidane there because he was as good as three players uh, rolled into one. And um, mistakes will always be made in transfer markets. And as Paisley used to say, the best manager is the one that makes the fewest mistakes, not makes no mistakes. And uh, that was a mistake by Newcastle. But uh, you could go on to say that later on, we made a lot of mistakes in France. Uh, Billy Whitehurst, I think, is someone before we go um, that we must mention because if we talk about tough and rough centre-forwards and expecting he-man centre-forward, 
then Billy epitomised that. Um, he made Desperate Dan look like Shirley Temple. Uh, he was absolutely, literally frightening. Uh, driving into a brick wall would have had less impact than um, playing against Billy Whitehurst. He absolutely terrified people and his reputation was known throughout football at the time so much so when he was at Newcastle that when he was transferred and again he was a centre forward of limited potential good in the lower leagues but not quality in the top league but give you a physical presence like nobody else when he was transferred to Oxford Newcastle were due to play at Oxford and Glenn Roder told me the tale at Newcastle centre-half at the time. He said, I used to go down to Bruff Park at the Greyhound track in Newcastle with Billy on a night and we would have a smashing night. He said, and I realised all of a sudden I'm going down to Oxford and I'm going to face Billy Whitehurst and he will absolutely spit me out for breakfast. So he said, I spent the whole game talking to Billy about the dogs at Bruff Park and what's happened to the, the ones we used to bet on and all that during the game. He said, unfortunately, Jacko, Peter Jackson, that played centre-half with him, didn't. And as a consequence, Billy Whitehurst left Glenn alone, but he actually smashed Peter Jackson's nose in that, in that game with, with a, a form smash. And I asked Billy about that afterwards, and Billy said, um, aye, well, he said, the trouble is with Jacko, he didn't have the sense to talk to me. Uh, he said, and I don't like that when people don't talk to me. So he, 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 got, he got roughed up. And Billy was a boy around town. I talk about Quinny in town and Paul Cannell in town. Uh, and they were fun guys in town. Uh, but pussycats compared with uh, Billy Whitehurst. I mean, I remember he gave me a call. After he left Newcastle, he gave me a call a little while later. And he said, I said, hey, give it to Billy. I said, oh, Billy, blinking neck. Didn't expect to hear from you. What's up, mate? He says, good news. I said, what's that? He says, I'm coming back up the northeast. I'm signing for Sunderland. And my heart sank because I knew what that meant. X number of nights out trying to curb uh, a bear with a sore head. And um, years later, the funny story that, that Billy told me, he, d he decided to go and watch Sunderland play Sheffield United up here because he was in the area for some reason after he finished playing. And um, if you remember, when in New Year's Day 1986 at St James's Park, um, Newcastle were playing Everton and Paul Bracewell was playing for them and Billy tackled him and just about cut him in half for tackle. It smashed his ankle. He virt it virtually ended... Brace's England, well, it did end his England career. He managed to get fit again and play, but he was out for two years. And then he, he, he played to a certain level at club after that, but was never the play he was. Well, when he went to Sunderland v Sheffield United, game Billy later on, Brace is playing for Sunderland. He said, um, and Sunderland lost 4 1, Sheffield United. He went to the game because he played for both clubs. Uh, he went to the game, and afterwards he said, I'd had a few sherbets like, so I was a two parts to the wind, charged into the uh, Sunderland dressing room after the game, said, hey, lads, how are you doing? Lovely to see you. And as he was running in, was taking his clothes off, got completely naked and jumped in the communal bath, which I had these days. He said, 
braces at the other end of the bath and the first thing he did was jump out and, and disappear because there's no way he's going to mix with that lunatic any, anymore. Uh, and that was Billy Whitehurst as, as again brought up at the rough and tough end of life and was really phenomenal um, in terms of literally scary, literally scary. For yourself as well? Oh, yeah, he was scared of going out for a drink with him because, uh, and he had an incredible build um, and could drink for England. Uh, it was both scary to go out for a drink with him, but reassuring because I tell you what, nobody was going to set on you if you're in Billy's company. They all knew better than that. Uh, and I think underrated, if he could have done a job as great as he could do, physically cleaning out centre-halves. Quality centre-halves playing for England and Manchester United were terrified of Billy Whitehurst. Literally terrified because he was built like a, a brick outhouse and he put it about and he w could take it as well as giving it. Uh, fearsome lad, good memories, but I prefer him to stay in Sheffield. <laughs> well, there you have it. That is the end of this episode of Gibbles Corner thank you very much for joining us um, as always you can drop me an email um, or on Twitter with any suggestions that you would like Gibbo to talk about um, we've got a few lined up but you know your suggestions are very welcome um, head over to chroniclelive.co.uk for all the latest Newcastle United news thank you This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.